1 John chapter 1, starting verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is, is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful uh, and just to forgive us uh, our sins and to uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world, of the whole world. You can hold your Bibles in that place. Uh, we will remain there for, for a little bit here. Um, it's good to see you this morning. Good morning, Grace Church. So about a year into our marriage, uh, Caitlin was working as a, a night nurse, and so she was working the night shift, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., um, and she had worked a, a Saturday night, and at that time I was preaching about every third week in an interim capacity at a, a small rural church, I had to drive about an hour to get there. And so I woke up that morning, and we had blackout curtains on the windows because uh, Caitlin has a hard time uh, sleeping with, with light. She doesn't have that. I don't have that problem. I can fall asleep pretty much anywhere. But, uh, but we had blackout curtains on there, and I was, as a, a new husband is, very sensitive to her needs. And so I decided I would get ready in the dark to show sacrificial love that I had read about in all these books. And so I didn't turn on really the bathroom light. The sunset was com- or the sunrise was coming up through the windows. And I got ready and uh, put my socks on, put my shoes on, uh, had a shave, all that good stuff. And I drove an hour to the church and greeted everyone, said, hello, how you doing? I got ready to preach, but I ran to use the restroom before I did. And as I was washing my hands in the restroom, I noticed something on my cheek and I went to brush it off and it didn't go off. And I realized there's about a quarter size spot of, of hair that in my uh, loving kindness of, of sitting in the dark, I had just missed completely in my shave. And unfortunately, I, at that point, I wasn't shaving every day, as you can uh, see. I'm not so good at shaving. And so I, it had been a long time. So I, it wasn't just like a nice little patch of a shadow. It was more like, you know, some gnarly hairs just popping out of my cheek. And I tell you what, there's nothing better to teach you to preach in the humility of Christ than that moment right there where there's no razor available and it's time to get up. And so, you know, you, you kind of try to give them your good side as you preach, but it <laughs> it didn't really work. And uh, yeah, and as I swore off shaving after that. So here we are. But so it is, isn't it, with sin. As we walk in darkness, our, our sins, our Darkness, our mess-ups, everything in between is hidden by the darkness. And yet as we begin to walk with the God who is here called light, the God who is holy and beautiful and illuminating, our, our sin is illuminated to us. And the muck that was indiscernible in the dark, the gnarly hairs that were sticking out of our face that we hadn't yet noticed, we begin to, to see 
And as we see these, the, the question comes up in our minds, am I truly his? Was that repentance and, and faith real? Surely this should be behind me by now. And doubts begin to, to plague our minds as we sin and stumble and that darkness just seems to linger. This is a question that paralyzes Christians and has glazed over many doubters as well, which is, am I really his? Could this sin be remaining in my life? And if so, what do I do to stop it? I feel this question in, in countless counseling sessions and conversations with, with skeptics. Uh, I've filled it in my family devotion time with my children and everywhere in between. The question of what, what do I do with this sin that even though I've prayed and asked Jesus into my heart, right, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, and yet like the Israelites, it feels like all I do is turn back, right? Well, John is going to unpack this question, the entire book, which we're not going to talk about today. This is this, one of the central questions of the book of First John is answering this question. What do I do with this sin that clings so closely? And as we sympathize with the great reformer Martin Luther, who said, the devil loves to make saints into sinners and confident sinners into saints, we ask that question as well. And John's answer in these few verses, before we get to any of his other tests, which will come later on that we won't get to, he asks one question. One diagnostic question. He asks you, what do you do with your sin? Where do you go with your sin? How do you respond after you've sinned, after you've stumbled, after the darkness has been exposed to you, after the mirror has been put up into your face? What is your response? And John lays this foundation to show us that apart from any of the other tests... This will be the one that most clearly and definitively tells us whether we are seeking to walk in the light or whether we are enjoying the darkness. So John gives us three potential responses in these verses. You might have caught the first one in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the first place we go with our sin is, is into hypocrisy. Right? The first option we can take as we're confronted with the darkness that's been exposed in our heart is to hypocrisy. The way I would define hypocrisy for you is simply a public profession without a private devotion. John asked those wondering about their genuous, does your public testimony match your private initiative to trust, follow, obey Jesus? Or do you have a, a very prominent public profession with a shrunken and dwindled private devotion. So we're in Dallas, Texas, the gigantic buckle of the Bible Belt. So this question is going to nick at least a few of us. Does our public profession match our private devotion? You say, well, no, Pastor. I walked an aisle with my friends when I was in RAs. Right? You say, no, I'm a good moral person. I have good Christian values. What are you talking about? But that's not John's question, right? John's question is not whether we walked an aisle when we were in RAs. It's not whether we have good values, whether we're a good moral person. His question is, what are you walking in? You see, walking has a direction. Walking is intentional. Walking has an end point. So where are you heading? Is your destination toward Jesus, John asks? Are you walking in the light toward the one who illuminates the Father, or do you talk a lot about the light, but never get up and walk? 
Now, this is not, to be clear, perfectionism. We'll get to that later. But what it is, is a life bent on pursuing Jesus. A life bent on pursuing Jesus by killing our sin, loving our neighbor, and making disciples. Do you see how that's distinct from profession? So profession is a good start, right? Profession is needed. But profession is the beginning of our walk with Christ. It is not at the end of our walk with Christ. If all we do is merely profess and then show up at the right places at the right times for the right services, John says that is not how we deal with our sin. We don't run back into the darkness to hide it, putting up a front of fake religiosity. Instead, we come into the light. So Christian, was your baptism the beginning or the end of your pursuit in Christ? Pursuit of Christ. Was your baptism the beginning or the end of your pursuit of Christ? Jesus was less tactful than John when he spoke of hypocrisy in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, starting in verse 25... Jesus speaks to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the people who most would have looked to as good examples of moral and religious people, people who would have had the values that would have been esteemed in their day. Jesus is not impressed by their public profession. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, that same word, public profession without private devotion, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, Christianity is an inside-out transformation. It takes a supernatural transformation that begins from the inside and works its way outward. Jesus says, you have to clean the inside. The inside is the part you eat out of, right? That's the part that if you had to pick one, I'll give you one half of the bowl you get to clean. Which half are you picking, the inside or the outside? Well, Jesus says it would be silly to clean the outside. In the same way, we have to have an inside transformation rather than an outside. One is a surface level. Your bowl looks very nice as you catch coronavirus from eating from it, right? But you want to clean the inside. That's the part you're going to eat out of. And then when you get get to it, the outside will come. So praying a sinner's prayer ought to be, again, the beginning, not the end of our Christian life. I saw a survey from the Barna Institute that said some around 50% of Americans have prayed some sort of a sinner's prayer in their lifetime. 50% of Americans have prayed some sort of a sinner's prayer in their lifetime. In their lifetime. And I would say I'm not going out too far on a limb to say 50% of Americans are not believers, right? I don't think that's, that's too far-fetched. But why is that? Well, you see, friend, it's not the, the words of the prayer that save you. It's not the words of the prayer that lay hold to the salvation that Christ has bought for you. It's the repentance and the faith behind the words that lay hold to the salvation that Jesus has bought for you. One pastor has said it this way. He says, what's most important is not the prayer you pray to Christ, but the posture that you assume toward Christ. John would say, it's not the words you say, it's the walk that, that, that those words initiate. So the question before us is not, have we prayed a prayer at some point in our lives? Have we recited the right incantation to draw God's loving kindness toward us? The question before us is, was that prayer the beginning of an appropriate posture toward Jesus, of lordship, following, and walking toward him? Or was that 
merely a prayer to hopefully take some guilt away. And then it began the journey of hypocrisy and hiding the rest of our darkness, the rest of our sin. Was it putting up a good front, but continuing to enjoy and live in the sinful patterns that characterize our life before we prayed that prayer? See, even the Ten Commandments, what feels so burdensome and law-inducing and guilty to us, even the Ten Commandments are rooted in number one, which is what? Worshiping God. Worshiping the Lord God. All of the other Ten Commandments are inadequate worships. Right? Murder is worshiping power and authority over God. Stealing is worshiping possessions over God. It's simply a disordered love. This is why Jesus, when he sums up the Ten Commandments, when he's asked, how would you sum up those commandments? You got a, you got a lot of book here, Jesus. I don't really, I want the cliff notes. Can you give it to me? Jesus says, sure, yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In this is the law and the prophets. Does your sin break you only when it's impractical? Does your sin break you only when it's impractical? John says, you might say you have fellowship with him while you walk in darkness. And yet if we do, we lie and do not practice truth. He calls us to walk in the light. Do you quake at the idea of getting found out? Or at the broken fellowship and communion that sin causes you between you and your father? What breaks you more? The thought of getting exposed? Or the thought of not having more of Jesus tomorrow because your sin is in the way? I want to do something a little unusual. And I just, I just want to stop and pray right now as we, as we dwell on that question. Uh, pray with me if you would. Father, we come to you, Lord, asking for you to illuminate. Lord, you have sent your spirit to do just that. To reveal the Father to us. And as we stand before a holy and almighty God who is perfect in every way. Lord, often we feel small and inadequate and unholy. So, Lord, I pray for those this morning who are beginning to have their their sin exposed. Lord, those who know in their hearts that they have been walking only in hypocrisy. Lord, those who have put up a front for a long time, not wanting to truly be known. Lord, I pray that you would begin to break down those walls and that they would find grace in the arms of Jesus. Lord, may your spirit continue to move, move among us as we seek you in your word. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so one way is hypocrisy, hiding. The second way, the second path we can take, John says, when we're confronted with our sin is denial. So one, hypocrisy, says, I'm going to hide it over here and I'm going to put up something else. The other says, no, it just doesn't exist at all. That's not sin. It might not be great, but it's not that big of a deal, right? So in context here, John's addressing this idea of perfectionism. Right? So these people who would say, Look, yeah, I appreciate the grace, Jesus. Thanks for that good start. I'll take it from here. Thanks for your help. I appreciate you putting away all that sin in my past. Now that I'm here, I think I've got this, right? He's addressing this idea of perfectionism. I don't think we run into this quite as much in our day. I mean, we, some, some of us do. I think the more, more pressing um, application of this is those of us who would say, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. We're, we're all eager to admit we're not perfect, right? This is what John is addressing in verse 8, when he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Most of us wouldn't say, I have no sin. No, no, I'm, I stumble occasionally. 
every once in a while. I make mistakes. I still deal with pride because I'm so close to being perfect. I deal with pride in that, right? I'm almost there, and that causes me to think more highly of myself. So that's, that's a struggle for me. But now I've, I've reached the stage where I can look less at my sin, and I can start looking at everybody else's. I've finally reached that stage of Christianity where, now I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm closer than most. And so the problem with the world is not my sin. The problem with the world and the problem with my relationships and the problem with the church and the problem with society is everybody else's. My sins are little foibles. Maybe they're things that the Enneagram explains away for me. Whatever, whatever we say, right? They're cute. They're, they're kind of bad. I don't enjoy them, but they're not that big of a deal. Where the true imperfection lies... Where the real problems of the world lie are in those people. Have you been here before? Okay, this sermon, this this part hurts me. I hope it, I don't hope it hurts you, but I kind of do. Because this is, this is where we go, isn't it? We're eager to, to put up a false front of humility, but in the end of the day, we may say we have sin, but we live as though we have no sin. We act as though we have no sin. And what we end up, what we end up with is a, a semi-perfectionism that creates in us a desire. Instead of being our brother's encourager, it makes us into our brother's accuser. We are so eager to find the blind spots of everyone else, to find the darkness in everyone else, that we never get illuminated to our own blind spots and darkness. John is not a fan of this one either. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The Bible is, is clear, right? That all have sinned, Romans tells us, and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, most of us, when we think of sin, right, we think of transgression, which sin is. So Romans 1 is clear. We, we, I won't turn there, but Romans 1 is clear that sin is transgression. Sin is lawlessness. But it's not just that. So Romans 1 describes the sin as... So the transgression, the lawlessness, is a result of something else. It's a result of a swap. So it says we take our creature... I'm sorry, we take our creator and treat him like a creature. And we take the things that he created and treat them like our creator. And so we take God, which is worthy, who is worthy of all worship, adulation, love... And we put him down here and say, yeah, you're, you're okay. Thanks for all your stuff. And we take all of his stuff and we place it in his place. And instead of the stuff being a means to the creator, instead of enjoying that cup of coffee to the glory of God, we swap it, right? And the creator becomes a means to the stuff. This is what the Bible calls idolatry, right? Taking good, bad, everything in between and turning it into worship. And this is where all of our sin, according to Romans 1, lies. The root of all sin is simply idolatry, simply false worship. You see, all that rebellion and transgression that characterizes our life is rooted in disordered loves. Rooted in disordered loves. And this is a huge evangelistic challenge for us, isn't it? I agree with Francis Schaeffer, who a uh, great apologist and evangelist, who he said if he had an hour to spend with an unbeliever, he would spend 45 minutes defining and explaining sin. 
And then he would spend the last 15 minutes explaining the way out in the gospel. I may, I may take more like a 40-20 approach, I don't know. But I think that's pretty close, right? Because in our day, most of us either have come from or know people who are currently in this stage of denial. My sins aren't that bad. I don't, they, don't, they certainly don't deserve judgment. That's for, you know, Al-Qaeda and those, those really bad guys, right? Judgment, whoa. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I don't deserve judgment. And yet the Lord looks at us and says, Have you loved the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself today? Have you used your job to provide for your family and bless others? Or has your job become a way to gain more money and more power over others? Have you served your spouse or have you used your spouse to fulfill your emotional and physical needs? A few weeks ago, I, was, I boarded a plane. I was going to watch a basketball game. We won. Um, War Eagle. I was boarding a plane, and I was reminded uh, as I boarded the plane of all my mentors who have shared with me how, how they've had these great conversations in, in planes with people, these great gospel conversations where you know, they, people ask them what they do, and they say, I'm a pastor, and who, you know, what do you know? Once you say pastor, either people either freak out and put their headphones in or immediately delve into uh, this great conversation about spiritual things. And so I'm, I'm boarding this plane, and this is in the back of my mind. You know, this, this would be a good opportunity, and I'm remembering all my mentors who have shared with me how they did this. And I'll be perfectly transparent. I'll just expose my, my wicked heart to you. My first thought when I thought of that was, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my headphones in before I board the plane so that nobody will talk to me, so that I won't feel guilty if they did talk to me and I didn't share the gospel with them. <laughs> do you see the plan there? Right? No, no. So I, I don't want to feel guilty, but I also I'm not really in the mood to talk to somebody right now. So I'm just going to put my headphones in before I get in so that nobody will speak to me. And then if nobody speaks to me, I won't feel guilty for talking to them but not sharing the gospel with them. And I'll be honest with you, I wish I could tell you this, stand before you this morning and say, it was due to cowardice. I was scared of what they would think of me. I was afraid that they would think less of me. It wasn't that. It was apathy. It was laziness. It was lack of love. I I, I wasn't feeling loving to whoever was going to sit in the seat next to me. What I wanted was to put my instrumental bluegrass music in and listen to the new, or read the new book that I just downloaded on my Kindle. That's what I wanted. I wanted to check out for a moment and do what I wanted to do. And so as the Spirit moved and reminded me of these stories and said, you might have a good gospel opportunity today, but the first place I went, headphones, no. That's my wicked heart, right? And see, to, to write that off and to say, yeah, but I mean, I deserved, I'd been working hard and I, I deserved some time to myself, right? I mean, yeah, that's bad, but at least I didn't like punch the guy, right? Or get him thrown off the plane or, you know, I could've, it could have been a lot worse. That was a simple, quick decision. For me to write that off and say that wasn't, I mean, that's not actually sin. That's lovelessness. To write that off would be to call God a liar. For me to explain that away and to say, that's not a big deal would be to look at God's word and say, God, you don't get to call me a sinner. And for me to tell God what he gets to call me is to call him a liar. Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Perhaps this morning you're very adept at critiquing the radical left or those right-wing nut jobs. 
But what of the materialism that leads you to go hit buy now on Amazon when your soul cries out for satisfaction? How good are you at spotting that? How good are you at spotting your inability to pray for longer than 30 seconds? And how that reveals in your heart a hunger for productivity over communion with your God. Do you say or do you live as if you have no sin? Do you minimize your own sin when it's exposed and maximize other sins? John says we are deceiving ourselves and are calling God a liar for pointing that out in others. So, as the light exposes us, we have a couple of options, right? We can retreat into hypocrisy. We can get defensive and explain away and deny. Or we can take John's third way. Starting in chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John says, I have a purpose here. I'm not writing these things to you to make you feel bad. I'm not writing these things to you to critique society. I'm writing these things to you to help you not sin. Well, we ought to listen. And he says, the way you can use this information... The way you can use this mirror into your own heart and not sin is instead of taking one of those two paths, look to your right and see the third way. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, repentance, actual repentance, kills both hypocrisy and denial. It puts both to death. This morning, you may be hiding well from your parents, your church elders, but friend, you are not hiding from your Heavenly Father. And you are not hiding from Jesus. He knows and He sees. And as terrifying as that is, John doesn't go there. John says He knows and He sees and He calls Jesus our advocate. Jesus knows the darkest parts of your soul. Jesus knew the minute I stuck those headphones in what I was doing. And he didn't turn on me. Instead, he uses the word advocate. Advocate is simply a legal term for one who argues your case. Someone who argues your case. And this is a a beautiful picture. So I want you to just picture for a moment. You're standing before the judgment seat of God, right? And he asks you, tell me why you're innocent. And you're on the dock and... You stumble for a second and stutter into some things and you say a couple of sentences that don't really make much sense and you shuffle your feet and begin to look down at your feet and immediately you realize, I I can't hide anymore. Hypocrisy is not going to work with God. He sees straight through it. And I can't deny because he's just told me that I'm a sinner. those Those are the two paths I've always taken. I'm not really sure where to go. So the minute you are about to look up and say, I'm guilty, you hear a squeak in the back of the room and a chair is being shoved behind, and you look to see who stood up, and there's Jesus. And he speaks for you, and he pleads your case for you, and you ask, well, what in the world is he going to say? And I'll be honest, the way I've thought this works for, the way I thought this worked for a long time is, I I figured he probably said something like, you know, Father, kill 2471, he's trying really hard, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's kind of a bumbling idiot, but he's lovable, right? He, he kind of got to love his eccentricities. And, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, he messes up a lot, but I got a soft spot for him, right? And so if you would, just give him one more chance. And I bet you, 
I bet you he'll do better this time, Father. So just give him one more chance. That's the way I, I mean, not in those words, right? But, but really, as I imagine Jesus pleading my case, it was something to that effect. Nice Jesus, mean Father. Dad's angry and big brother's over here like, no, no, no. Just hold on just a second. He meant well, right? This is not the case that Jesus pleads according to John. Did you hear the case that Jesus pleads? It's in the next verse. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's this beautiful word. It's a $2 word, propitiation. You say, well, I don't come to church for big words. And I say, well, you should. Because in these words are the riches of our faith. And if my six-year-old can learn about evaporation, you can learn about propitiation, okay? So track with me here. Propitiation has a very simple definition. I'm going to use another big word to define a big word. They tell you not to do this, but I'll define the other big word too. Propitiation means wrath appeasement, okay? Say that with me, wrath appeasement. All right. So you say, okay, nice. One, One complicated word with two complicated words, okay? Well done, preacher. No. So wrath, right? Most of us know what wrath is, right? God's holy anger against sin. It's judgment. This is what we want for every sinner but us, right? When someone wrongs us and hit and runs us, what do we want? Want them to pay more than they owe, right? I don't, I don't just want them to pay me. Now I want them to pay more because they hit and ran. It was, was shown to us clearly. Somebody stole some uh, Caitlin's purse out of our car a couple weeks ago at a playground and um, it was yeah, very sad, and it's, it's been a pain in the neck. Um, I, I got some banking advice for who not to bank with if you have it, if you need some. But um, anyway, all this to say, that's neither here nor there. Um, but what, what we found was we did this, right? We're like, okay, we want our money back, but we also, we really want them to like get caught and go to jail and learn their lesson and come out reformed. And we want them to just feel bad. We want an apology and a letter. And we want all that. Like, so it, it went away from like just getting our stuff back to like we want them to pay, right? So we want wrath, we want wrath, of wrath for everyone else, right? But when we start talking about wrath for ourselves, like, well, hold on a second, it wasn't, you know, I, I needed some money, right? I, I didn't really steal it; it was just kind of sitting there, and I took it. And this is how we work, right? So wrath is God's judgment against sin. Appeasement. Appeasement. What is appeasement? Appeasement is simply the payment of a claim that is owed. Right? Appeasement is taking away that thing which was due. Right? So propitiation is wrath. Appeasement is taking away the judgment, taking on the judgment onto one's self. All right, so that's a, that's a nice dictionary definition. You didn't come to church for dictionary definitions, though. So let me give you an example. The Bible sometimes gives us dictionary definitions, but more often than not, it gives us real examples. And it does in the life of, of David. So many of you know David, right? Man after God's own heart, king, kind of a big deal. King David was a faithful man, a godly man. He's commended throughout Scripture as an example of faith and steadfastness and obedience. And King David was also guilty of sexual assault and murder. King David didn't just have a foible, right? King David didn't just stumble and trip over his feet and then get back up and say, whoopsie. King David fell catastrophically. You know the story. I won't recount it in great detail, but David was bored at home as his soldiers were at war, and in his boredom, he decided to pursue another man's wife, had her called into his chamber as the king with power over her, took advantage of her, 
sent her home, tried to cover up his mistake. When that didn't work, he had her husband murdered to, again, try to cover up his mistake. So David went to that first one, right? David went to hide mode really quickly. Okay, king, uh, king of Israel, that'll, this is going to hurt me, not only me, but also Israel. So he justified it, I imagine. Look, I can't hurt Israel's reputation. God's reputation will be marred if I, come, if I tell if people know that the king did this. But God was not content to have his reputation defended by King David. God did not need his reputation defended by King David. And God, in his great mercy, exposed David's sin. What, have you ever considered what a mercy it was for David's sin to be exposed for him by the prophet Nathan? How different David's story would have been if he would have continued down the path of hiding and hypocrisy to his grave? How far away from God he would have run in his efforts to hide and keep away the Holy Spirit's conviction? And yet God in his mercy would not leave David there. God in his mercy would not leave David content to hide his sin and pretend. But he sent the prophet Nathan, and you know the story. Nathan tells a parable to David about a man in his kingdom who has stolen a man's sheep. This man is rich. He has dozens and dozens and hundreds of sheep, but he's stolen this little farmer's pet sheep who he cared for from birth. And he stole the sheep and took it and killed it and ate it for dinner, right? And David, rightly so, is angry at this story that Nathan tells. He says, fine, this man, I'm going to kill him. We're going to put him to death. This is unjust. You remember what Nathan looks at him and says? You are the man. Is the Lord exposing you this morning? This is a great mercy. Do not flee God's exposure. And the reason you don't have to flee is because of propitiation. Turn with me to Psalm 51. David, in his brokenness over his sin, David is immediately crushed by the reality of what he's done and he ceases fleeing and begins weeping as he sees himself for who he is and he sees his need for salvation. And he writes this beautiful poem we have recorded in Psalm 51. You can see in, the, in your heading probably it says something to the effect of a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is after he's been exposed. And it's a, I won't read the whole thing. It's a beautiful psalm. You should read it later. But one thing sticks out to me in verse 7. David says, as he pleads with the Lord to, to cleanse him of this sin, he's repenting. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge me with hyssop. What in the world is hyssop? Well, some of you gardeners might know what hyssop is, right? It's a leafy branch thing. That's not the point. Why does he use hyssop? Why not a rag, right? Purge me with something and clean me. What, what, what is he bringing out with hyssop here? This is where, if you read your Bible over and over and over again every year, right, there's these, these things that your ear catches, and you're like, I remember hyssop somewhere, right? Where have I heard about hyssop? Or maybe you, you can cheat, you can have a study Bible and look at the footnotes, and that's cool too. You do, you do that. Hyssop comes from Exodus chapter 12. We see hyssop again in Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, you can probably see at the heading of your Bible, is recounting this event called the Passover. And in verse 22, God's giving instructions to the Israelites. You can remember the Egyptians have just been dealt nine plagues 
They've been judged by the Lord to free God's people, the Israelites. And now the, the nail in the coffin is, is coming. As, they, as they've continued to rebel and push off God's judgment, the Lord's warned them and warned them and warned them. And Moses has given Pharaoh a, a word that, Pharaoh, if you don't repent, if you don't allow us to leave, judgment is going to come on the firstborn sons of, of Egypt. And God gives the Israelites some instructions on how to avoid this judgment for themselves. In verse 22, he says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. You see, the only difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians was the blood over the doorpost. This was God showing them the only difference between you and the Egyptians is the lamb that has died in your place. The lamb has propitiated, has appeased the wrath that is due for sin and rejection of God. See, David is done hiding and denying, and instead, David begins to look forward to the coming lamb that will propitiate his sin. The Passover has already happened, and yet David is saying, cleanse me with the same hyssop that cleansed the Israelites. Look over and pass over my sin on the basis of the Lord that is coming and the lamb that is coming. You see this again in John. In case we missed it, John says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Faithful and just thought God was merciful when he forgave sins. I thought God was being nice when he forgave sins, faithful and just. And John says, oh yes, God's not having a good day and decides to overlook our sin when he forgives it. That's not the case that Jesus pleads as our advocate. The case that Jesus pleads as he stands before the Father is not one more chance, is not be nice today. The case that Jesus pleads is the justice that has already been accomplished on the cross. The case that Jesus pleads is that he is our advocate pleading his own blood. The blood is not over the door. The blood is on the cross at Calvary. Propitiation means the claim has been paid. Justice has been executed. Martin Luther had a phrase he liked to say. It was in Latin. You'll have to bear with me. It was simul justus et peccator. Simul sounds like simultaneous. Eustace sounds like justice. Peccator does not sound like sinner, but that's what it means. Simultaneously justified and sinner. This is our status as we are justified by God. We continue. We don't continue in sin, but we do have darkness exposed. We do stumble and fall. We don't walk towards sin, but oftentimes we end up there. And yet... As we come, as we confess our sins, Jesus promises not to be merciful, but to be faithful and just to forgive our sins because he has died in our place and in our stead. A more modern version of Luther's saying is, is from Pastor Tim Keller. He says the gospel is this. I love this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Friend, you don't know the depths of your sin. As you continue to walk toward Jesus in holiness, God will continue to turn on lights and closets that you didn't know existed. If you don't believe me, get married and have kids. 
Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So brothers and sisters, repentance is not a vaccine that you take once and then go on your way. Repentance is a daily vitamin that you take to sustain your spiritual health every single day, every single hour. You see, the new and immature believer sins a lot and hates it a little, but the older, mature believer sins a little and hates it a lot. Have you inadvertently this morning moved on from repentance? Have you moved on to the bigger and better things of the faith? Have you moved on to conquering the world for Jesus and doing all these other extra spiritual things and left behind the simple task of repenting for your sin, turning from your sin and back to Christ and seeing his propitiation, seeing his blood on your behalf? You see, the holier we get, the more we walk in the light and the more we notice the little dust bunnies in our lives. God begins us so he doesn't hurt, us, hurt our eyes, right, with kind of a fluorescent bulb, 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 that was my Alabama coming out, a fluorescent bulb in the room of our lives. And it shows us some trash on the floor, right? It shows us some clothes we might need to pick up. But then as we begin to continue to walk, he equips us by the power of his spirit with an LED bulb. And it replaces that fluorescent and it's a little brighter, And we see things that we hadn't seen before. We see the dust bunnies that need dusting. We see the ceiling that's got a stain on it. And those problems take a little bit more effort than a mop. They take a little bit more deconstruction. And yet they're rooted in the same things. Addiction and adultery are rooted in the same idolatry of churchy greed and anger. So brothers and sisters, continue killing your sin. Do not settle for a light scrub. This can only happen with God's grace. You must apply Jesus' blood to your life every single day. Grace is not a one-shot deal. So in light of this, what might God's Spirit be calling you to do this morning? Perhaps the Spirit is lighting up new areas and new rooms of your life, calling you to a fresh repentance for areas that you didn't see when you were saved, but you've begun to notice and you've been scared. You've been hiding or denying them, hoping they would go away. And the Lord is calling you this morning to repent, walk in the light, come out of the darkness. Perhaps there are some who have never experienced this at all. You've dabbled in religion and been a hypocrite. You've dabbled in anti-religion and denied there was a problem at all, and yet the Lord is exposing the darkness that characterizes your life. Whatever darkness is being exposed this morning, I would plead with you, come into the light. There is grace and there is Jesus waiting, not as your enemy, but as your advocate. So we'll have elders standing in the back as we sing, and if you would like to... Deal with God if you would like prayer, if you'd like to know what it means to to follow Jesus. If you're just confused, wondering, I've prayed a prayer, but I'm not really sure if if it was real, we'd love to give you counsel. So meet an elder in the back, and, and we'd love to pray with you. I'll begin us in that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for for our advocate. We thank you for sending your son. Lord, we know that we could not have accomplished what he did on our own. Lord, as, as Christ the Lord hung upon the tree, Lord, he was hanging there in the stead of ruined sinners. Lord, may we not glaze over that truth this morning. May we not seek to move on to bigger and better things, but may we return to the glories that were revealed to us as we were first converted. Lord, may it appear as sweet, if not more sweet today. Lord, I pray for those who are walking in darkness, Lord, whose your spirit is illuminating their lives. I ask that you would give them, uh, Lord, courage 
And I also ask that you would move them not simply to an awareness, Lord, but to faith that works, faith that moves. Lord, I pray that you would continue to expose my sin. I pray that you would continue to expose the sin of your people so that like David, we don't take it with us so that it doesn't continue to eat us alive. But like David, we can be purged with the hyssop. Like David, we can stand not our own behalf, not because of our goodness, but because of the blood of Jesus. Father, it's for him that we sing. It's for him that we live. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.